Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And this is the podcast where we take equine research and try and make it accessible to horse owners and enthusiasts alike. Remember that with each topic we discuss, it's important to get professional advice before implementing any of the strategies. This week, Nancy and I are discussing a chapter that is titled Behaviour Genetics of the Horse. And this is by Mark Deasing and Temple Grandin. So we're going to actually split this into two episodes of the podcast because there is loads to cover in this topic and a lot of interesting information that's come up. But a short introduction is basically they wanted to investigate why horses behave differently from each other. And they say that people have debated this question for centuries with some believing that horses behave as they do according to inborn tendencies and others think it's what they're taught. So the age-old discussion of nature versus nurture. There's a lot more evidence now to say that both sides are partly right. Um, Nature, which is genetics, definitely plays a role. It gives the horse those inborn emotions and traits. And then nurture, which is their experience and their upbringing, that takes those genetic tendencies and molds them as a horse learns and matures. So there are a couple of different sections in this, um, but it started off with molecular behavior genetics, which is a fascinating topic. Um, As you know, Nancy, did you want to start with that one? Sure. I was fascinated by this because... Um, first off, they refer to a 2005 study um, just solely on molecular genetics as it pertains to temperament in horses. And they took 136 two-year-old thoroughbred horses, 73 males and 63 females, and they were all kept on the same farm. They were at the same stage of training, shared the same training area and had the same caretakers. Um, Blood samples were taken for DNA analysis, and then they had a questionnaire survey to kind of rate the temperament traits of each horse. Now they did find an association between a polymorphism, which is a gene that comes in two or more forms. And this polymorphism was in the dopamine 4 receptor gene. So there were two temperament traits. They were either curious and they were very novelty seeking or they were vigilant. So the survey kind of reflected the temperament, and it seemed like the caretakers were pretty spot on with uh, describing um, the vigilance or the novelty seeking level of the horse. So horses with one gene displayed lower vigilance, and then if they had the other dopamine receptor gene, um, it was associated with novelty seeking in in um, like unusual circumstances, their curiosity, I think is a good way to put it. So anyway, um, 
it kind of revealed that that gene can go one of two ways. And it's probably environment that creates that. But we'll learn more as we go further through this paper. Yeah, and they found that it's similar in humans as well, which is one thing they pointed out when they talked about um, research that basically horses aren't ideal candidates for laboratory research and their size alone and how much it costs to keep a horse I'm sure wouldn't be that conducive but they have found that much like we do a lot of research in mice and it's applicable to humans um, the research that we do in mice and humans and other species is applicable across to horses as well so that molecular research was really fascinating that they were able to do that in such a large um, study because that was a big, like 136 is a significant sample size of horses. Yeah, and the fact that they were all the same breed kind of cemented that their, their gene pools were similar because all thoroughbreds tend to have that high reactivity. It's just at what level, I think, that does the genetic component and the environment enter into that equation. So, you know, talking about the mice, um, did you read that part of the paper uh, where they had a mutation in one of the locomotion genes that yes. they found it in the gated horses. So they went to my um, a mouse population and they, um, what, how did they do it, Kate? I think they blocked the normal function of the gene. And yeah, so there, that receptor. Yeah, so there were no uh, mutations. And when they blocked that, there were changes in the locomotion and gates, and they became similar to those in gated horses. That was fascinating that, that that's the way that went, that they could even see those changes in um, the way a, a mouse moves. Yeah, and that they were able to actually switch the function of mm -hmm. that gene. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the crossover is really, it's fascinating. Um, and I think, yeah, that was the study as well, where they kind of pointed out from there that the expression of certain specialized genes for emotion um, invertebrates between kind of mice or horses has remained remarkably conserved over time. So it's one indicator that we can use. And yeah. when we're looking at that genetic code that is associated with emotional behavior in animals. Yeah, and we've always kind of known that there's genotypical expressions and phenotypical uh, involvement, which that's the environment a horse is raised in. So you've got individual horse personalities and temperaments interact with genetic, social, and non-social environmental factors. So um, a, there were a lot of behavioral tests uh, performed on 702 horses and ponies, and they were stabled at 103 different riding centers, training centers, a national stud, and breeding farms in France. So they only used registered horses to enable accurate breed identification. So uh, sex and age were 
all well represented in the horses. I, it says there were 185 mares, 305 geldings, and 212 stallions. So they use these behavioral tests to kind of, um, oh, identify temperament, emotionality, and learning ability. So the arena test was used. So they were released into a familiar arena. And that behavior of that horse was recorded for 10 minutes. Now, um, the emotional reactions were used to evaluate the effects of social separation in the arena. So they were used to that arena. So they really could... Um, what would you think, Kate, they could really come up with a conclusion on that social separation because there was nothing in that arena that they were fearful of because they were used to it. Yeah, and it definitely, because of that familiarization, they would have a, an emotional reaction. It's like, I suppose the way I kind of envision this, because they mention the horses, you know, whinnying and walking about and some vigilance is when especially if you've ever been at a riding school if you take one horse in from pasture um I maybe my experience is a little bit different being more rural but you you wouldn't take all the horses in necessarily so especially during the winter you might only have some horses that are being ridden and they might be in for a couple hours and then when you turn them back out into the field they exhibit those behaviors and they're also calling out to the herd and trying to locate where their friends are as well. And that's what I kind of pictured when they released the horses, well, one horse at a time into that familiar arena. Um, they were kind of just expressing those emotional reactions to, okay, like I know these scents, I know this area, I'm comfortable, I feel safe here. Yeah, and I then they added some elements to try and, see if they could evaluate nervousness in them for being separated and being in the arena. Yeah. And they did that by using a cage with a ribbon attached to it. Uh, they placed that in the arena, which when they were, um, I guess, looked at for their social separation reaction or emotion, that cage with the ribbon wasn't there. So then all of a sudden now it's there and they recorded um, five minutes of their behavior with that cage and the ribbon probably kind of blowing if there was a breeze or, or just the fact there was something new in the arena. They recorded that. And then I was really kind of fascinated about the bridge test, which was used to estimate estimate fearfulness and that was a foam mattress covered with a checkered cloth all of a sudden that's out in the arena and each horse was led to the bridge with a halter and the experimenter tried to encourage the horse to cross the bridge so that was um, to estimate fearfulness now we all know that would be sometimes tough especially on a thoroughbred to all of a sudden in some place where they're at day in, day out, have this checkered mattress appear. And then uh, the last thing they did was the learning and memory task was they learned how to open a box with food inside. And uh, subsequently, they brought them back 12 hours later to see how much recall they had. 
And do you know what I was thinking that was interesting with the um, mattress test is we've done this before, like just to kind of, I suppose, character bills and horses or um, add an extra element to their training, you know, teaching them to get up and down off like um, almost like step areas, mm-hmm. but they're quite wise. They can fully get up and they can fully get down. But when I thought of this, I was like, oh, my God, like imagining because it's a foam mattress, when the horse stands on that, it's not a solid ground. It's going to take a huge amount of trust and confidence for the horse to actually walk across that. Yeah. And that's even hard for some people to walk across. Yeah. Oh, it depends how much give it has. But, you know, horses kind of when something's unstable, it's a, they become a little fearful because, you know, they know they need a solid structure. Look at bridges. Sometimes they're a little funny about crossing a bridge um, because I think they sense there's nothing underneath them, really. So um, anyway, I, I thought that would have been a tough test because um, I don't even know if my Welsh pony would would go across a foam mattress without a little bit of training. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it would take a lot of um, coaxing yeah. and a lot of rewards to get them up over that, which I, wasn't used in this. No, they, they just kind of recorded like five minutes of their behavior. And the results showed that genetic factors such as sire or breed influenced more they called it neophobic reactions and that's fear of new things are experiences such as the bridge test so environmental factors such as type of work played a more dominant role in learning abilities and reactions to social separation and remember the episode we did where they we're talking about dressage horses had higher emotional reactions. Yes. So they that came through here. They didn't quote that uh, referenced research, but they said that show and dressage horses exhibited higher emotional reactions to the social isolation test and the fear test, which was the bridge, uh, compared to horses used for other types of work. So I think that's a really practical finding that we can use in training our show and dressage horses. And I think it was interesting where they tied it in um, that it was a notable finding because a prior study that was by uh, McCreevy found a high level of stereotypies in dressage horses um, and then a study by Freeman's reported that horses that were more sensitive to light touch were more likely again to have stereotypies such as cribbing. So that when you see something like that, where dressage horses have come up in two areas there, it does just link in that genetic because we're breeding these horses specifically for that genetic ability to be good racers or to be good showers or good at dressage, good at jumping. And so that emotional genetic factor is carrying down as well. Yeah. And I, I agreed with what they said about those 98 breeding stallions and they were in two separate government facilities. 
They were kept under similar conditions. So food stall, um, little or no training for riding. They were just breeding stock. Um, it was similar, but there were environmental differences between the two facilities. And those differences showed in their reactions to the bridge test or their fearfulness. And um, on the memorization test for getting the food reward. So to the researchers, researchers, it suggested that varying handling practices and differences in caretaker behavior probably caused these differences. And how often do we always say certain Kentucky Derby level thoroughbred training barns have the best grooms and the grooms make all the difference in how those horses perform. And so caretaking is a big part of it and who you get to take care of your horses. Oh, environment plays such a massive role. I've always believed that. Um, yep. I know there are inbuilt genetic controls with emotion, like in particular, when you think about it, no matter the environment, typically a thoroughbred is going to be more highly strung. So we see those differences just come through. But I think it does. It just, you could have the horse with the most potential. And if you have them in an environment where they can't thrive, then they won't. Yeah. And especially if they're so fearful and, and reactive. So that kind of leads us to the next section, which is the effects of early experience on behavior. And so they have low reactive foals or high reactive. And um, it was so surprising to me that there are prenatal effects on behavior. I found this section really fascinating. Um, I have actually read other studies um, to do with... I I don't know if I've actually mentioned it in any of the episodes, but to do with um, what's in called what's called inherited trauma, um, and this is studies they've done in rats, which I've definitely mentioned, and in cattle as well, and in cows, what they found was that um, like a bad experience if the cow was in calf and they had a bad experience, then once the calf was born, the calf would naturally avoid whatever that experience was, which is a really fascinating thing. And it's, I suppose, linked to, in this study, they talk about the ability of that stress hormone being able to pass through the placenta to the fetus. And that's in humans as well. It's, I mean, from this, I would take that it's in all species, um, all mammals, so it's a really interesting concept and an important driver for us to control stress as best we can when we do have horses in full. And, you know, it's just like the mare preparing that baby to be able to be able to survive in that stressful environment. But really, you know, you don't want that highly reactive horse with that is highly reactive above what's normal for that breed. And they said it actually that stress hormone involved a number of brain development uh, changes and interactions. So even small changes from the normal developmental path during fetal life 
can become progressively exaggerated over time, producing long-term or permanent changes. And I, I agree, Kate, I think that might be in all mammals or at least humans. And uh, here they're showing that it does occur in horses. Yeah, and it is, it's an interesting one in the effect then it'll have on that foal being like their degree of nervousness as they go on through life. Yep. I know everybody always told me the redheads are always the most reactive, but it would be interesting to follow to see if that color gene, um, mm -hmm. how connected to, to a stress reaction. You know, I don't think it, it is, but you know, everybody always says redheads are crazy. But, but it's funny, though, because we have I, like I would have to look up to see if there's research to back it. But undoubtedly, we have noticed that in one species in particular is cats. So where you just have short haired cats, if you have a ginger male, so whether it's a tomcat or whether it's been neutered, if it's a male and it's ginger, typically nine times out of 10, they are the sweetest, loveliest, docile cats. Um, that color rarely occurs in females. You like it's not as common to find a ginger female cat. But then when you think about our tortoise shell cats, which are typically female, so that color is actually linked to the gender gene, they tend to be absolutely wild and crazy and difficult to handle. No matter what the upbringing has been, they just have this inherent feistiness in them. And high reactivity. I have yeah. a I I have a ginger male who is so sweet and almost like a dog. Yeah, by you and follow you around. And then his sister is a tortoise shell cat. Oh, you've one of each. <laughs> and she, I need a spatula to get her off the ceilings. Yeah. <laughs> If she gets spooked or something startles her, watch out because she's leaving as fast as she can. But you, that's so true, Kate. I did not know that, that that was in research. So, well, I must look up to see if there's papers, but it's definitely the gender with the color gene occurs. But then there's such distinct behaviors that come with them that um, they must have done some research on it. So that's our prenatal. Um, disposition and genes that are passed through the placenta postnatal effects is crazy in this paper and I will post a link to the paper on our homepage but back in the 90s there was a book called imprint training of the newborn foal and um, it kind of was a fad for a while and so they would forcibly hold a foal that um, within 10 minutes of being born and mm -hmm. force it um, and hold it in a lying position on the ground while the um, experimenter would stroke them and expose them to novel stimuli like a towel, a plastic bag, a spray of water. And sometimes I can't believe this paper says they would do this for an hour and anyway, now it's inconclusive, but it, for the most part, it shows that when these foals grow up, 
they're kind of socially not with it, you know, so it is so interesting because actually like this is written and obviously your own um, bias will come into it too because this it's written very plainly um, just what the procedure was. But as I was reading it, I just thought like this just sounds horrific um, and they would repeat the stimulus until the foal remained immobile. So to them, that was the foal then, I guess, being relaxed and accepting what was happening. But the foal would lie on its side immobile, but would have a high muscle tone. So it was just absolutely flooded with such stimulus. Like It sounds like what they actually did was create as a trauma in these foals, because the foals then, as you said, Nancy, lacked social ability. They showed more aggressive tendencies, more fighting tendencies. They didn't play with um, other foals that hadn't been subjected to this. And foals that hadn't been subjected to this basically were just like happy-go-lucky foals, like prancing about in the pasture. They were inquisitive. They were confident. And these foals just literally seemed traumatized, the ones that had had the imprint training. Yeah, I I really, um, I did not know this. I had never been involved with doing this, but I knew trainers who had tried it. And the one couple, they ended up giving that foal away because as it grew up, it became unmanageable. And I don't know whatever happened to that horse, but um, I agreed much more with the author's assessment that, you know, you need to handle these foals um, as little as possible and let them bond with the mare. And then the author of this paper would go in and not pay attention to the foal, but just pay attention to the mare and groom her, talk to her, um, relax her. And then the foal accepted the human much easier and with mm -hmm. much more trust over time because it's almost like that foal observed that handler being completely what would you call it gentle or um kind to the mayor yeah. so the foal learned to trust the human that part of the paper i really did like to see that the research panned out that that's the way you do with foals or you take care of foals yeah, and actually, you know, that crosses over with most species that you should really ignore them. Like with um, dogs, or with particularly with cats, I mean, pay them no heed and they will come to you. That's why they always say that people who hate cats attract cats. Because if you're in a room and you hate a cat, you're going to literally be avoiding making any eye contact with it. And that cat is going to think you're friendly because that's, yeah. their, <laughs> that's the way they communicate. But with dogs as well, where we've got fearful dogs or we've got shy puppies, we're told to just give them space, ignore them, let them come to you. And I suppose in those instances, we talk to the owner, um, which can probably create a similar trust in the animal because the animal trusts the owner and you're only talking to them. They're having positive reactions with you. And then slowly that animal kind of comes out of its shell. Yeah, and I thought, you know, that's a good way to put it, Kate, because they called it a non-intrusive neonatal handling method. And really, it's 
it's just common sense, really, is, Mm -hmm. you know, these foals go from a very secure, warm environment, and then they kind of go through what I would call a brutal birth, because they change from getting oxygen from the mare to their lungs being squeezed to the point that they activate and they start breathing their own oxygen. And I mean, they go through quite a bit. And and I just didn't like to read that at 10 minutes after they go through all this trauma, you're holding them down and not them do. And, you know, they were also later to um, begin nursing. They didn't, you know, and boy, when I worked on the breeding farm, you wanted that fold to, to, you know, relatively quickly begin nursing to get that ostrum and and all that. So anyway, I really like the author's description of his, you know, experience for the, his last 20 years of being in the horse world. This is how he does his foals. And uh, everything was very, very gradual and letting the foal bond with the mother first. And, and I did agree with that. Yeah, because even in these foals where they did the imprint forced handling training, um, these foals became more dependent on the mares. Mm-hmm. So they literally looked to the mares for even more cues for how they should react and as I said they played less and they were less social with other foals so it's not like it created a bond with humans um, because these foals also were far less likely to approach an unfamiliar human that was in the fields whereas the control foals or the ones that hadn't had this forced handling carries out would approach and investigate the human yeah, and further on down, and I may be jumping too far ahead, but they also said the mayor responds to how that foal is treated. Yes. So I think when she sees her baby being held down and, and all that, I I had quite a few mares wouldn't put up with that. And you'd be mm-hmm. making things worse for the mayor to recover from giving birth. So um, I think it's all kind of tied together. Yeah, I think it has a knock-on effect and then you're creating stress in the mare, which they're already going through. You know, their body has been under stress giving birth. Yeah, and and that serotonin gene uh, would, you know, is so important and that's part of the protective behavior of mares. And so they linked it to a gene um, that was, um, oh, it's serotonin is like an inhibitor uh, of neurotransmitters in the central nervous system. So it's linked to the regulation of mood and emotions. And so it has two polymorphisms, so uh, short and long. And so in human studies, increased stress sensitivity and young human females, um, human and in rats, um, resulted in maternal anxiety. And mm-hmm. also the short farm found to influence infant temperament in the early postnatal period. So there you go. You can go either way. And that's why I think siblings can be so different 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And you mentioned, Nancy, about the author um, and his techniques for introducing himself to the foal via the mayor. Um, and there's one section in this that I just thought was really, really nicely written. Um, for anyone who is in this area, if you're you know, new to breeding or you're getting into breeding or you've been in it a long time, the way he talks about teaching a foal to wear a halter um, is so gradual and just done in such a way that it doesn't create a bad experience in the foal. And I really love how they described it. So when he would, it's first of all, he works with having the foal just accept being touched all over. And this is over a period of a couple of weeks um, and at the foal's pace. So he never does anything that the foal doesn't like. He waits until they're confident and happy um, for him to do it. Before haltering the foal, they said that he approaches the foal in the same manner as he always would and has the halter tucked into his belt so the foal doesn't see him with the novel objects that could cause fear. And then he gets the foal into the hug position, slowly pulls the halter um, and gently slides it up and down the foal's nose. If the foal resists at all, he lets go immediately and he never forces introducing the halter. If the foal doesn't resist, he'll slide it up and down the nose until they seem indifferent. And then he'll bring it fully up and stimu simulate buckling it to see how they would react to that before actually buckling it. If they do accept the halter and it gets buckled, um, they just wear it for a couple of minutes and he takes it off again. But the important thing is every time he approaches this training with the foal, he handles the foal the exact same way. So it's a consistent, systematic pattern. He'll go back up, do the hug holes again, gently slice it up and down the nose. And consistency is really key in building um, trust because in a consistent, routine, systematic pattern, the foal knows what to expect and they're not fearing what may occur. Yeah, I thought it was the small steps he took and letting the foal tell him when he needs to back off or proceed and then also he accounts for the differences between a highly reactive foal and one that's less reactive and he lets that level determine how fast he goes and I thought that was really good for anybody into breeding read that section because um, he's had really good success with not producing fearful horses. Yeah, I think it's, um, did you say this paper's open access for a little while longer, Nancy? It is. I don't know how much longer. It is a uh, science direct. Um, and, you know, so it said it. it's part of a book called Genetics and the Behavior of Domestic Animals. And this is kind of the release of the third edition. So they just did this in July. They put it out and they're having it be open access for a short time. And it's through the academic press um, group. So I will put the link. Um, the only thing is, I don't know how long it's going to be available um, free. So but anyway, very interesting and um 
I think that's kind of all I had, Kate, uh, for this week. Um, next week, it's really interesting. So be sure to join us because it goes into the hair whirls and temperament and then the lateralization in the nervous system of a horse and what um, the hair whirls may reveal. And I have a double whirl high in my redhead. So I'm um, <laughs> delve into the hair worlds because I know it's always been kind of folklore and all that but um, they've got it down to a research so I'm anxious to to get into that next week brilliant I can't wait to dive into the next part of the paper okay so well, we'll chat to you then okay thanks Kate for joining in bye-bye thanks Nancy take care